Last week, Sean kicked off a uh, sermon series in 1 Peter, and I was, as I was preparing for today's message, the second message in the series, I couldn't help but notice some of the similarities between uh, the believers in Peter's day and us today. Uh, in chapter 1, beginning in verses 1 and 2, Peter addresses his letter to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Like the believers in Peter's day, we have been chosen according to God's foreknowledge. We have been chosen to experience the life-transforming work of the Holy Spirit. We have been chosen to obey Jesus Christ, and we have been sprinkled with his blood. Or as Paul says in Hebrews 10.22, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Also, like the Christians in Peter's day, we have become aliens in this world. Uh, this is just thousands of believers who believe exactly like we do, trusting in Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why God extends his grace to us? Why God planned and orchestrated the sending, suffering, and sacrifice of our Savior? You know, none of us were ever worthy or without sin. None of us ever did anything to earn or deserve his grace. And yet God gave us his son, cleansed us from sin, set us apart, and gave us his Holy Spirit. Why would God do all that for us? I can only draw one conclusion. God loves us and wants what's very best for us. He doesn't want us stumbling around in sin and regret. He doesn't want us beaten down with guilt and self-pity. He wants to free us from the shackles of sin so we can spend eternity with him. And like every loving father, he wants what's best for us. Some might say God is obligated to save us. Uh, he created us in his own image. Therefore, uh, he owes us. Uh, uh, he, he has to save us from our sin. This may have a ring of earthly logic, but it's not true. Every, every parent knows that in order for a child to grow, they have to learn to accept responsibility. You know, a loving parent will hold their child's hand as they cross a busy street, but if they're still holding their hand when they're 21, there's a serious problem. Children need someone to teach them and show them how to behave. Our Heavenly Father has provided everything we need to learn and grow and become like Him. But we must accept responsibility and we must draw near to Him. According to 2 Corinthians 3.14-16, there's a barrier, there's a wall that separates us from God that only Christ can take away. Verse 14 begins, But their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
Over 40 years ago, the United Negro College Fund starting running, started running ads on television uh, promoting a scholarship, and the slogan they used was, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And while that slogan was directed at a specific group of individuals, uh, it's an important message for all of us. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. A life is a terrible thing to waste. When it comes to unbelievers, that statement is especially true. Not everyone can afford to go to college, but the gospel is a free gift. What a terrible waste to turn down God's free gift of eternal life. What a terrible waste to see so many great minds dulled and darkened because they refuse to repent and make Jesus the Lord of their life. In the parable of the sower, we learn that many will hear the gospel and not believe. Some won't believe because sin has hardened their hearts. The truth can't penetrate into their minds and hearts. Others receive the gospel with joy, but quickly uh, are distracted. Some want to believe, but the riches and the cares of this world draw them away. And of course, many do believe and put their faith to work by serving the Lord. Satan, sin, and evil have us all surrounded. I can't ever remember a time in my short life when I felt more surrounded by evil. We're like a wagon train in the Old West that has circled itself to defend against thieves and raiders. Only the thieves and raiders aren't trying to kill or, or take our cattle or our horses. They're trying to steal our souls. Pride attacks us. Greed attacks us. Lust and envy attack. Gluttony, wrath, and sloth attack. Our country has the sixth highest divorce, divorce rate in the world, uh, with nearly half of marriages ending in divorce. The United States alone, there are approximately 2.9 million cases of child abuse reported each year. And even if just half of those were, were true, it would be horrible. And every year, there are over half a million abortions. And the list goes on and on. It's not hard to imagine how someone's heart can be hardened by sin with all the sin that is around us. Our God is not oblivious to these facts. Make no mistake, God loves everyone, and he wants everyone to repent because he wants to forgive everyone. If you're struggling with frustration, temptation, or sin, the answer isn't to throw in the towel. The answer isn't to give up, to join in with the rest of the world. The answer is to continue to put your faith in Christ, continue to trust him. He can remove the veil that's destroying your perspective. He can replace your frustrations with peace and hope for tomorrow. Even the hardest, meanest, worst criminal can be saved and have their life transformed if they trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We've all seen the dark and disturbing events happening in our world today, 
but have we acknowledged the dark and disturbing events that are sometimes happening within? I came across an old country song recently describing how sometimes we respond to sin. John Conley sings a song titled Rose-Colored Glasses. The words of the chorus are, Those rose-colored glasses that I'm looking through show only the beauty because they hide all the truth. And sometimes we're guilty of putting on those rose-colored glasses and not seeing the truth, the real truth, not seeing our own sin. Sometimes we live in denial. And I couldn't help but think about how I tried that recently. Uh, I tried to cut out TV. I tried to cut out uh, the computer and Facebook and all these things because I, I, just, I wanted to just forget about all this stuff going on in our country today. And uh, I wanted to just deny it existed and, and go on without it. And you just can't deny reality. Uh, it just keeps on coming back to haunt you. Sin is the same way. The only way to avoid it is to get rid of it. Denial isn't the answer. Repenting and trusting in Christ is the answer. I pray that we never lose sight of what the Lord has done for us, that we continue holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, that we continue surrounding ourselves with friends and family and fellow believers of like precious faith, and that the truth of God's word will always prevail in our thoughts and in our plans and in our actions. And in all circumstances, we remember Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28, when he said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If we speak the truth in the name of Christ, we will be persecuted. Uh, we might even be killed, but they can never destroy our soul, and they can never take away the, God's promise of eternal life. Only God can destroy both soul and body in hell. In First Chronicles 28, David encourages son Solomon to know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him... He will let you find him. I like that part. He will let you find him. He doesn't have to let you do anything. But if you seek him, he'll let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Someone once said that attitude is, is everything. Uh, more accurately, the right attitude is everything. And in our text today, Peter addresses the attitude that should govern all of our conduct. In verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 1, we read, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Some of you might be thinking, uh, I'm doing a really great job of conducting myself in fear right now. I mean... Every day there's something new to be afraid of. Our country is experiencing a spiritual battle like most of us have never seen before. Some of the information we're hearing is wise and responsible, but much of it is nothing more than lies designed in, to hurt and harm others. America is still a great country, but evil is spreading rapidly. Some days it's hard not to be discouraged. 
I was thinking the other day that it might be a good idea to put in an application for the TV series alone. Uh, you know, that's where they take you and they drop you off in a remote and desert, uh, desolate location uh, surrounded by bears and wolves to see how long you can survive. Well, I was thinking, you know, I, I, I'd probably be safer with those bears and wolves than I would be, be with some of the people that I was listening to at the time uh, in the media and in the news. But when Peter encourages his readers to conduct yourselves in fear, he's not talking about fear in relationship to the world or in relationship to men. He's talking about our relationship with God. And he's talking about the reverent fear we should have for our, our Heavenly Father. The word Peter used for fear had nothing to do with terror, but everything to do with reverence, awe, and respect for God and his word. Peter wanted the church to have the kind of fear Proverbs 14, 26, and 27 describes. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. In the military, there are strict codes of conduct that mem every member must respect and obey. And if you don't, you could be court-martialed. Can you imagine trying to win a war with men and women who refused to follow orders and just did as they pleased? If every soldier followed their own battle plan, there would be chaos, and every battle would be lost. We have codes of conduct everywhere in our society. Businesses like Coca-Cola, Amazon, Honda, they all have codes of conduct because they want to make sure their employees know what's expected of them. They don't want their employees to show up chronic, uh, chronically late for work all the time. They don't want them insulting their customers, bringing down morale, uh, driving off business, reducing their profits and salaries. So they have codes of conduct. And what about the school system? What would the school system be like if there was no code of conduct? Uh, kids would run wild. Uh, teachers would resign. I see one with somebody over there jumping up and down for joy. <laughs> Already running wild. Uh, <laughs> hey, it's okay to be wild sometimes, right? If you're having fun. Innocent fun, right? But it'd be a mess. It'd be a disaster. Parents would sue. Education would come to a complete halt. So even unbelievers, even non-Christians would recognize the importance of respecting and obeying codes of conduct. A day is coming when our Heavenly Father is going to judge each one's work. And on that day, God's code of conduct will be the only one that matters. If you've ever had an employee review where someone sat down with you and judged your work, you know that men don't always make the best judges. In most cases, the person judging will have their own biases uh, based on their own experience or lack of experience or based on their own uh, education or agenda or personality. But there is no bias when God judges because he always judges impartially. God shows no favoritism. Every believer and unbeliever will be judged fairly regardless of skin color, economic status, education, talent, or achievement. 
In Acts 10.35, Peter said, In every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. In other words, there are only two requirements that matter to God. Number one, that we fear and respect him. And number two, that we do what is right. When it comes to fear, we have a choice to make. We can fear earthly enemies and adversity, or we can fear God. The person who fears God doesn't need to fear earthly enemies and adversity. As believers, we're reminded in Hebrews, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As Christ followers, we don't fear God's wrath, but that doesn't make it any less real. As A.W. Pink noted, there are more references in Scripture to God's anger, anger, fury, and wrath than there are to his love and tenderness. In Nahum chapter 1, we're reminded the Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, Just as God is good to those who trust him, so he is terrible to those who do not. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, Paul, Silas, and Timothy encouraged the church by reminding them of God's wrath. As they wrote, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Everything in life has its price. As someone once wrote, there is a price to pay if you want to make things better, a price to pay just leaving things as they are, a price for everything. If you want to be a great athlete or a top salesperson or the fastest pizza maker in the world, it takes a lot of hard work and sacrifice. The same is true in marriage. Good marriages require work and sacrifice. Life is no longer just about you once you're married. Sometimes you have to sacrifice your needs and interests for your spouse's needs and interests. Sometimes you have to forgive and forget in order to make a marriage work. Sacrifice is an important part of marriage because love requires sacrifice. Think of all the sacrifices parents make for their children to ensure their safety and to make sure that their basic needs are met. It takes a lot of work and sacrifice to raise a child, managing a household, being a godly example, providing loving discipline and spiritual training all take time, energy, and sacrifice. I don't know how the USDA figures their numbers, but I recently read where parents today will spend between $172,000 and $233,000 raising one child from birth to the age of 17. And that doesn't include any college expenses. 
So between 10 and 14,000 a year per child. When you add up the time, the energy and effort that goes into raising a child, the sacrifice is impressive. The fact that most parents love raising their children and wouldn't have it any other way doesn't diminish the sacrifice that's involved. Most parents gladly make those sacrifices because they have great love for their children. Could it be that our God has even more love for us? Think about the cost of our salvation as Peter wrote in verse 18 through 21. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has, has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The cost of our salvation was the sacrifice of the sinless life of Christ. He purchased us with his own blood. In the first century, slavery was common. People became slaves as a result of war, bankruptcy. Sometimes they even sold themselves as slaves because they couldn't make a living. Sometimes parents couldn't feed their children and sold their children into slavery where at least they would get a good meal. Others were born into slavery. Most slaves could look forward, though, to freedom after a certain period of time or after they had managed to save up some money to buy their freedom. A friend or a relative could also purchase their freedom for a price. Jesus paid the ultimate price for our freedom. He suffered and died so you and I could live. He gave everything so you and I could be with God for all eternity. Because of Jesus, you and I can confidently put our faith and hope in God. Let's continue to fear him, be in awe of him, respect him, serve him, obey him, and worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all sit here today or stand here today before you uh, acknowledging our unworthiness and acknowledging your great love for us and mercy. We thank you for that. We thank you that you sent Jesus to make that very clear to us, and we just pray that you'll help us uh, never to forget it. Help us in the midst of uh, the darkest days ahead to find great courage and strength in you and to know without a doubt that uh, you love us and you care for us and you've provided uh, a fantastic future for us as we trust in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.